Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. Well, welcome to Addiction to Freedom. I'm here today with, in fact, I've just had a really interesting conversation with Charlotte Dune, and um, she's a fascinating person, has a really amazing story, which totally surprised me and blew me away as a very young diplomat coming out of a kind of a hippie hillbilly family, which was really a massive contrast. And then and then really her journey through not only the ordinary kind of struggles of life, but but also in, a, in an environment where she had a lot of challenges to do with her work and the relationships and and then and, and also addiction as uh, which she really found I wouldn't say a unique solution because it's been around for thousands of years but uh, using plant medicine in, in therapeutic ways so I'll leave you to listen to the episode to discover more about that but we also in the end touched on some really I guess fundamentally deep, and a human place of love and peace that we're all looking for. And so I have to say this episode's a real journey and I really encourage you to, to just settle back and, and just allow yourself to be taken on the ride. So without any further, I'll, uh, I'll introduce Charlotte. Well, welcome to Addiction to Freedom. I'm so excited to introduce Charlotte Dune from Florida, United States. And I first became aware of Charlotte, uh, I think it was through maybe social media or something. And, and I kind of became fascinated by her because she just has this really quirky, interesting life. And it's a lot to do with mushrooms, which we're going to talk about. She's got her first novel, which was um, Cactus Friends. It's a psychedelic love story. It's been out for a while, an ebook, um, paperback, audible. and um, But she's also got a new one coming up, a sequel to that, um, Mushroom Honeymoon, <laughs> which sounds interesting, doesn't it? So oh, there it is. And uh, she also runs a creative recovery writing workshop which I'd like to really understand and talk about. So welcome, Charlotte. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell me, how did you get the idea for writing novels around mushrooms? So the series that I have, it's called A Psychedelic Love Series, and it's they're magical romance adventure books, and I also say that they're psychedelic fiction and metaphysical fiction books. So that's a fancy way of saying that they're books that explore philosophical ideas and have a touch of romance and a touch of what I call entheogens. And so entheogens are compounds that help you connect on a spiritual level or practices that help connect you to your spirituality. So this could be anything from mushrooms to yoga to breath work. And I got really into these, I got really into entheogens myself 
because I was personally searching for a way out of addiction. And in the novel, the new novel that I have coming out, um, Mushroom Honeymoon, this is like a proof copy of it. The main character in that novel is also going through addiction and he's trying to find his way out and find himself. And he's exploring with different practices and he's interested in nature and bioacoustics, but he's also decides to go to a psychedelic mushroom ceremony. So in this case, it's a psilocybin ceremony, which is a combination of psilocybin or psilocin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, mixed with a compound that's traditionally part of ayahuasca. So an MAOI inhibitor that kind of like accelerates and extends the mushrooms. So I explored this kind of plant medicine ceremony in the book. And in the first book called Cactus Friends, I explore another plant called uh, Wachuma or San Pedro cactus. And in that book, there's a woman who's kind of struggling with her own creative identity. She's a photographer, but she hasn't found her way And she's also kind of using meditation and plant medicine to kind of find herself and ends up finding more than just herself in the, in the story. And I would say both of these are kind of have biographical elements to them. I never really thought I would be a fiction writer. I worked for the government for basically until a few years ago from the time I had like graduated college until quite recently. And It was during my own kind of struggles with addiction that I got into interested in these other topics and also that I really rediscovered my love of writing. And so I really stopped. So I I have like two addiction milestones since we're on the Freedom from Addiction podcast. Let me get right into that. (laughs) Because I just jump in there because I noticed you in one place I read that you you stopped writing for 10 years and and then rediscovered it. And I, I guess that was part of your journey? Yes. So, I mean, I say that addiction is, or in my case, alcohol is something that completely blocked the flow of my creativity. And it wasn't really until I cleared that out of my way that I could get back to my own creative practices and like really exploring and rediscovering the things I loved as a child. So I grew up in a very rural area in Appalachia in the United States, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, in along the border of West Virginia and Virginia. Um, Very under... For all of us that Mm -hmm. don't know, what's that like? Is that like that mountainous? Is it country? What kind of country is it? So if anybody's seen the movie Hillbilly Elegy that was on Netflix, that's basically the childhood that I had. It's very, very rural. It's what you think of like moonshiners and hollers and like deep, deep in the in the mountains and down in the valleys too. And there was no internet. There was no television, uh, really. We had like one fuzzy channel that came in every now and then. And the closest town that had an actual like big library was like a 35 minute drive on the highway. So it was really isolated. I couldn't see any like neighbors. I really grew up in the woods. My parents were hippies and they had decided to just like move out there (laughs) into the middle of nowhere. So we were kind of very different from our farmer neighbors, but 
there were some other like back to the land type of people living in the community that we were connected with. But so growing up there, I really, I wrote a lot. I read a lot. Um, my father was in a science fiction book club and I really got into those books and reading was like my gateway out of there. But of course, like in these areas, you know, it's an area that's known for endemic poverty, no jobs, high rates of alcohol abuse, huge methamphetamine. It was like the methamphetamine capital of the United States for a while because two highways intersected there. So there was a lot of drug use and alcohol abuse that I that I witnessed and was around from a young age. I can remember in high school, people doing cocaine in the classroom and, you know, smoking crack at senior prom. It was, it was a pretty like hardcore environment. Kids just drinking at an early age, being pretty acceptable for people to be drunk, for people to drive drunk was really common and like kind of accepted. So that was the kind of the background that I was coming from. And so I kind of lost my, as I became an adult, started, you know, had to get a real job, felt like I needed to, you know, go out into the world and make my way, started experimenting with my own like coping mechanisms for stress, like alcohol was my main one. Did you, in that environment that you grew up in, did you become involved in that kind of, as if it was a normal kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. It was just very normal to binge drink. I think it's very normal for most like American kids to go through that, but probably it was exacerbated by the fact that we were so isolated and you didn't really have that many examples of people that were taking an alternate path because we didn't have the internet. We couldn't like see everything that kids can see today. So I remember hearing that out of my high school, only 2% of people went to four-year universities who graduated like from the class, which seems just so low. So, I mean, it was definitely, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to kind of leave that environment and go and explore and learn about other things, but it definitely like shaped my early years. And kind of, I think, set me up for maybe having to go through like a more difficult path to get to my true passions than if I had just, you know, been in maybe, well, who knows, you know, city, I'm sure people in cities also have different struggles and, but that was my background. And I've always loved nature though. And I've always loved kind of having time to be introspective and having time to read and having time to think. And I went through, I don't know how much you know about my background, but I started working for the government. I became a U.S. diplomat actually when I was really young. So pretty much right out of college, um, I joined the U.S. Foreign Service. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge contrast. <laughs> Hippie family, isolated from the rest of the world, you know, in the hillbilly environment and quite creative. Let's Talk the positive parts of that would have been that you were really, as you said, you know, you didn't have a lot of external stimulation, so you were quite creative and you loved being in the woods. So going from that environment into the foreign service, did you say? Which was quite an act of rebellion. Yeah. I would say it was an act of rebellion. I definitely wanted to, like, get as far away from my small town as I possibly could. I was like, I'm blowing this popsicle stand. I'm out of <laughs> here. <laughs> 
<laughs> but so then my the first overseas embassy that I worked in was in Uganda. And on one hand, I felt like, okay, I was doing something good with my life. Like the people back home were proud of me and such like this. But on the other hand, I was really like completely a fish out of water. It was a huge culture shock. And I think in retrospect, I was experiencing a lot more stress than I let myself realize at the time, you know, and it was stressful. I was frequently going into like slums. There was an AIDS epidemic. I think at the time, 14% of people were HIV positive where I was living and there were no, this was when antiretrovirals were like just kind of gaining steam. So there was a lot of really gruesome dying and sickness that I witnessed and, you know, people with disabilities who were living just in abject poverty. It was pretty intense experience and really confronting. Yeah. So I think I started to cope in some really unhealthy ways (laughs) with, you know, being away from home, being away from my support network, even though that's what I wanted. It's like, sometimes what you want isn't always really what's best for you. And, um, I love the saying, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And when you disconnect yourself from kind of everything that you've known, yes, you go into like a work environment that's supportive and you have people at work, but the kind of relationships you have at work are not the kind of relationships that are always as fulfilling or supportive as you need for like personal issues or like just being 24 and working a high pressure job in a foreign country in a country that had really just come out of a civil war and the the northern part of the country was still dangerous. There was still violence, like you would hear about violent incidences all the time. So it was like a situation where I wasn't really safe. And I continued that for seven, eight, nine, ten years and went around different African countries. So during that time period, I really didn't read or write much at all, except for in my work, in my professional work life. And that was like memos and reports and State Department cables. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it was quite, it was pretty interesting at times, but it was not creative. It was very formulaic. And if you didn't follow that formula, you were criticized pretty intensely. And, you know, you'd get your work like marked back and covered in red pen. And (laughs) I did learn a lot about editing and grammar from that job though. But yeah. And so bouncing from place to place was a bit destabilizing. And so, yeah, definitely developed some negative coping patterns then that I had to later kind of unravel. And that's what took me to working with entheogens and trying to use kind of alternate I don't want to call them new age practices, but, you know, experimental health practices. And that was mainly because traditional stuff hadn't really worked for me. And I needed to explore and experiment with new things. Yeah. That's so interesting. You went from almost one very kind of insular culture, I suppose, to not, and even even just moving out into, let's say, a big city in the United States probably would have been a culture shock for you. But then, but then going over to Africa as part of a you know foreign service role, where you were probably witnessing things that most people never 
never become involved in. I wonder, the thought came to me, I wondered whether that kind of, you felt disconnected and alienated and kind of, in a way, maybe alone or lost at all in that. Did that, because that would have been such a huge shift for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were positive things like all the new newness and learning so much, but it was also a really big city. So I, I moved first to Kampala, which at the time, I think it had four or five million people there. I mean, it's a huge city. So I, I can remember just coming home at the end of the day and just feeling so visually overwhelmed. Like I had just looked at too many things, like there were just too many things all over the place. Because if you think about it, you come from this like pretty rural environment where it's like fields and trees and kind of like open spaces. And then all of a sudden it's like my, it's like Manhattan times 500 because there's like motorcycles and people on bikes and eight people piled into a truck and gridlocked traffic and people banging on your windows. And it could be really intense. There's just a lot of people. And at the time, Uganda had this really young population. So they'd had like a baby boom. So there were just like young people everywhere. And in some ways it was really vibrant, but there was also a big party culture there. And I also kind of got sucked into that party culture. And we used to say it was like the Las Vegas of Africa at the time, because very lawless and very inexpensive, like very cheap to be there. And so you also had some Westerners there who were kind of living a very grand neo-colonial life. You know, the big houses, maids, gardeners, nannies, and like 24-hour parties with tons of cocaine. It was very boogie nights, yeah. like a like <laughs> like a early 2000s boogie nights set in Africa. Wow. Wow, that sounds very <laughs> colorful. <laughs> it was there were a lot of Australians there actually doing kayaking, and we called them the river rats, and they were <laughs> like a a partying, yeah. lots of partying yeah. with them too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in some ways, maybe that felt a little bit more familiar, did it? You know, like I back at so. home. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why I gravitated to that. But then it kind of further normalized this culture of like binge drinking and just excessive alcohol consumption. Um, I remember also at the time, I think it was like three or four years in a row, the WHO would do these studies of which country had, cons which country consumed the most alcohol per capita. And it was always Uganda. And then I think one year, like Romania kicked them out of the top spot. <laughs> and then Uganda went wow. back into the top spot again. I never would have guessed that. Yeah. They, they also would say that they were the black Irish. So take every stereotype about the Irish and put them in Uganda okay. and <laughs> Those are the, the Ugandans would like joke about that themselves. So it was like something that people recognized, but also was just so widely accepted that I really fell into that. And then I, I married into a family there, a pretty prominent family. And that also kind of shaped that experience, but added new pressures because then I was kind of expected to act very much like a traditional wife, except I kind of wasn't, I was also like working like a career focused person. So that kind of also became like a source of conflict for me that I don't know why I didn't expect it, I guess, because I was just like so young and got married when I was like, yeah, like 24. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I, I can identify with that. It, <laughs> it, it's, it's very young to move into that. Yeah. Yeah, pr- particularly in your case where you had kind of expectations that you had to meet a certain stereotype. And then the the foreign service itself had kind of a culture of drinking because you also always had cocktail parties and these diplomatic receptions. And I can remember sitting in like a lecture, sitting in like a workshop at the State Department and they had a PowerPoint up and they were like, never hold two drinks at once and always like add soda water to your wine so that you don't get too wasted at the party so that you can like still carry on and don't blame it on the alcohol. If you say something wrong, make sure you like just stay tipsy and don't get drunk. But uh, there was definitely a lot of a drinking. And I think at some point they did a study and it was like 20% higher rates of alcoholism in the government for amongst like foreign service workers compared to civil service workers, like government workers that worked domestically. But again, I think it's just that disconnection. They they transfer you frequently from like job to job. I was a contractor at first, so I got to stay quite a long time in Uganda. But then they transferred me to Cameroon. I went to South Africa for a little bit. Then I went to Canada. And in the time that I was in Africa, I also would do like shorter work visits and other visits to African countries around there. But those were the primary places I lived. Uganda, Cameroon. And then a shorter time in South Africa and then longer period of time in Canada afterwards. So I think all the moving around also really kind of displaces people. And it makes you, you don't have those like true friends because you've just met people for the first time yet again, like two years later or three years later, however long you manage to stay. Usually it's two years, sometimes it's three. And people just turn to coping mechanisms and lonely, you know, loneliness, and then you're just drinking at home by yourself. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of how the, that's how the addiction snowball starts rolling. So where did that lead for you personally? Because obviously, you know, this is way, this is kind of in the past now, mm-hmm. you, you're in a, you're on the other side of it. So at what point did it come to, you came to this realization that things needed to change? Was there kind of any defining events or or how, how did that come about in your mind? Because obviously it would have been fun for a while, but then something changed. So I think, you know, I first got sober around the time that I had my daughter. So I had a daughter while I was working overseas, my husband, and I was sober for a while. And then it, the, it just started to like creep back up. You know, after you get over like the breastfeeding and you think, okay, I'm going to reintroduce this. And things really came to a head. My my husband was also having substance abuse problems and he eventually ended up getting deported and had a like, ended up getting deported, arrested, had a really like big kind of breakdown. And so when he was in rehab is when I really, I was a single parent then working in Cameroon by myself, feeling like, oh my God, what's happened? Like, are we both addicts? Like, where are we? Like, what is, is this normal? Is this not normal? Do other people drink like me? I started kind of asking all these questions. And of course there were a lot of people around me that did drink like me, but there were also people that didn't. And 
And, you know, I, that's when I started thinking, okay, I, I have a problem, I think. I think it's when you start to try to quit and you can't. That's yeah, right. that's when you know you have a problem <laughs> is when <laughs> is when like every Friday you're like, OK, I'm just going to have one drink. And then by Friday night, you're like blacking out and waking up with terrible hangovers and just repeating that cycle over and over again. So that definitely yeah. started to happen to me, especially when I was now like alone really upset about what had happened with my marriage and the fact that my husband had been deported and trying to decide like, is this relationship going to work? So it felt like I was going through like a forced divorce while also raising like a small child and then debating like, okay, do I want to keep my job or do I want to try to make my marriage work? Like it's very hard to be a woman and have like what they call a trailing spouse. So my husband was like coming with me, from post to post, and then they would give him a job at the post, but it wasn't a very fulfilling life for a spouse necessarily. Like it's kind of a big sacrifice. So, you know, I eventually decided to separate. We divorced. So I guess at the time my career was more important to me. So that's my own truth that I had to also live with. But I was really starting to have a lot of anxiety too from the alcohol and the occasional drug use, because obviously you're not supposed to be using drugs while you're working for the government. And so I started having terrible anxiety about this like double life that I was leading. And I started to really get, want to get help, but there was not much help available in Cameroon. You know, the just mental health capacity there was very low and the internet was terrible. I mean, you know, this was again, like the, like 2010-ish and the internet there was not, you couldn't Zoom with a therapist somewhere else, you know, you were just. <laughs> so at this stage, you you kind of got some self-awareness around that there's a problem here and you tried to moderate it yourself and realized that that was difficult and and you wanted some external help plus you had this double life that you you couldn't really go and you know speak freely to your work colleagues so you were trying to figure out how you how can you change this and and you and you're a mum exactly exactly yeah and so at the time you also had to have like a security clearance and a medical clearance so even just like talking to a doctor about an addiction was enough for you to lose your medical clearance get sent back to washington dc kind of like it's changed now i think but at the time it was not something you wanted to do so you kind of had to do it on the side So when the opportunity to go to Canada arose, I seized on to that opportunity because I knew I had some friends that had lived in Uganda that had since moved to Toronto. So I was like, okay, I'm going to know people there. And then I was like, I can see, I can go to like a proper therapist. I can get some help because I knew at that point that I really needed help. I think I had I also had been diagnosed then with like general anxiety disorder and PTSD. No doubt from some of the things that had occurred since I had been living in Africa and also some childhood trauma that I had not processed and some sexual violence I had experienced when I was younger. And so as soon as I arrived in Canada, I really 
made. And I also read this book called The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. I don't know if you're familiar about this with this book. I'm not, but I'm going to look it up. (laughs) So I think this is one of the first books that really changed my outlook and my perspective. It's not specifically about addiction. It's about research around how to have a happy life. And Gretchen Rubin was this Harvard Law Journal really dedicated researcher. And she did all this research on happiness and habits. And she had this whole concept about your days may feel long and miserable, but your years are going to go by really short. So if you don't figure out how to make your days more enjoyable, you're wasting your life. And this concept sounds so obvious and simple. (laughs) And she also had two, she had small children when she was writing the book. And she would talk about like the frustrations of being a working mom with small children. And it really resonated with me. And I I was just like, I have to stop being hungover and miserable every single day, just frustrated, trying to work, trying to parent, trying to keep the house clean, trying to look perfect on the outside, you know, and trying to like work out for, you know, hour after work and, you know, do all this other stuff. And so That book also kind of really made me realize, okay, I need to make a huge shift in my life. And then as soon as I got to Canada, I kind of started trying to make that shift. I started with a, I started with a therapist and I I also started in a, like a pilot study for people who had post-traumatic stress disorder to use Kundalini yoga to heal the post-traumatic stress disorder. And the University of Toronto was doing this study. So as part of the study, you got like free, the free like treatment program. And it was a long program and you did it every week and you went to these like group classes. So I started doing this. I started working on that, but I really had not, I was working on like these base level problems, like the trauma and the anxiety that I had and like trying to live a less secretive life and trying to like talk about what had actually happened. But I was still clinging on to the addiction pretty strongly, you know, still drinking. I was still in this, still trying to like moderate my drinking. I was still kind of under this illusion that I could go back to being a normal person, like a normal drinking that I had changed my environment. So now I was going to change because now I was in Canada and everything was going to be different and it would be fine now, right? And yeah. <laughs> so normal drinking means that, you know, drinking socially and, and you're not an alcoholic kind of thing. Yes. Like I was totally, um, I was not ready to accept that I had an alcohol use disorder that was like brain related. I kept thinking it was circumstantial, circumstantial right, to this like stress, circumstantial to this country that I'm in, like all these different yeah. I thought it was external and I hadn't really truly accepted that it was an internal issue. That's a really big shift, isn't it? Because like in my work uh, with addiction with people, I realized that when the person is looking for the solution on the outside, they never, never find it until they start, you know, realizing that the solution's on the inside. Right. And I was changing all these external things. And I was trying to do some work on the inside, but I, I really didn't understand like the neurology of addiction or like how my mind was functioning or like why I couldn't just have a few drinks without slipping into that 
like use disorder pattern. And around this time period, I got some really devastating news. I learned that my daughter's father, who I was still married to at the time, had gotten, he was out of rehab, but he had been accused of raping a woman and sexually assaulting two other women. So this was devastating to me because I had been trying to reconcile with him and I thought we were going to, you know, get back together and kind of like have like happy family again. And that really stuck the knife into that dream. I was like, okay, I got to, got to walk away from this. Can't be involved in this. (laughs) Yeah. So that dream of a, a kind of a idyllic solution just blew up. It really did. It blew up and my daughter was still so young and I was just, I just blew up. It, it really set me back too, because I thought, oh my God, how did I not know? Like, how did I make such a big mistake to choose such a bad person? Like, what's wrong with me? Like, why did I make this mistake? Like, how could I be so stupid? So all the blame and shame went back to me. And not only did I have to work on like getting out of love with this person and that break, that heartbreak and that breakup, but I also had to work on forgiving myself for choosing it. And so I think that was, you know, that was something that taking this back to the entheogens, it took me a good, I would say like six years to kind of move on from that incident and to forgive him, forgive myself kind of de-escalate the pain that I felt around that situation. And I really do think that the entheogenic practices that I started doing. So can can I ask, just before you go there, can I ask, you tried counseling and, and regular medical, let's say roughly medical interventions. What, what was, what, what we might call the, the stock standard approaches and with no success or little success? I had success, some success, but my problems had gotten quite deep by that point. Was that, was it, do you think when you say deep, did that bring to light deeper issues, let's say, that, uh, that, that you needed to look at and that they, they were, remained unresolved? Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. And not only deeper issues, but I think all the, so I think all the the chronic stress that I had been on for so under for so long, lack of sleep, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, a relationship that was abusive. When I look back on it, a, you know, this external trauma of these rape accusations, I had been in such a stress response for so long And I think I had been living with undiagnosed PTSD and depression for so long and kind of like just pushing through and forcing through that, that my just brain was out of whack. So the depression, I was having depression, everything was supercharged. I couldn't talk about issues. I was that like classic case of like, sometimes I would, I'd be like trying to talk to my therapist and I would just break down in tears because I couldn't, like I can talk about it now very calmly and laugh and joke. But at the time um, that stuff was so charged, so emotionally charged for me with pain that I was just emotionally avoidant. I didn't even want to talk about all of it. And I was just like kind of combing the surface, but really there was just 
a dead body buried underneath kind of thing. I hadn't told many of my friends about what had, like there were a whole group of people I hadn't told about what had happened with my marriage. And so, or told that I was struggling with alcohol. So there was all this stuff going on and I needed to decharge that emotionally. And so, so that I could even talk about it. And so I also, around this time, I heard about a man named James, Dr. James Pennybaker, who had done research on recovery writing and narrative therapy. And this research had basically shown that if you just like write out in a repetitive way, the things you're struggling with, and you just do it over a couple weeks, it decharges it. So I started doing this and I started writing out like every incident that I was too emotionally incapable (laughs) to talk about. And I just started writing them and kind of trying to like take the charge out of them. And then at some point, somebody I met who had also been through a lot of trauma, who had uh, been in Iran and had 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 been in jail and had had their parents thrown in jail and had had relatives executed and their father, you know, father had committed suicide. They told me that they had been taking magic mushrooms and that had really helped them get over their PTSD. And this was before Michael Pollan's book on like how to change your mind had come out. And it was before these like wounded warrior programs using like MDMA or psilocybin to kind of treat people with PTSD. So it was was before that was really becoming something in the news. But this person told me about it. And I was like, okay, well, I'm basically willing to try anything because at that point in time, I was still struggling to string together more than like 30 days sober. I would do maybe 30 days, maybe a couple of weeks, but then I would fall off the wagon and I would be right back to where I was like drinking every single day and like periodically blacking out high functioning, still maintaining a job, but having definitely definitely in an abuse and addiction struggle and so frustrated by it. You know, writing in my journal every day, I need to quit drinking. I want to quit drinking. I hate being hungover and then just doing it again. (laughs) And so at that point I was willing to try anything. So I started trying microdosing the mushrooms, which now there's been a lot of scientific research that this does help people with depression. And I had tried Zoloft. I had tried Prozac. I had tried ADHD medication at one point. I had tried Wellbutrin. You know, I'd had all this kind of stuff prescribed to me. And I did think the mushrooms helped. Like they just something lifted. So just for people that don't don't know what microdosing is, do you just want to explain that? Yeah. So it's just basically you take an amount. The goal is to not trip. So you're taking an amount that's small enough. So it's almost more like a vitamin and it it will vary by person to person how much this amount will actually be for you. So it does take some experimentation and I experimented with that and I, and you just do it periodically. So there's different protocols. There's like the Paul Stamets protocol, which is pretty well-known. There's different protocols of like every three days or every other day or, you know, these different methods, but I was kind of doing it intermittently. Like whenever I felt depressed, I would, which wasn't always. So maybe like once a month or once a week at times. And what would, and the effect 
be noticeable in your awareness or quite subtle? Very subtle, but I just would feel, especially like the next day, I would just feel like I could do what I needed to do and like move through my life. And then the days were getting more pleasurable and I was getting happier. And I started to become, to get more sobriety time. And so I also listened at this point, I also got introduced to another book. I'm all about the books, changing your life. I got introduced introduced to another book called this naked mind by Annie Grace, probably probably you're familiar with it. And I think the day, the first day that I listened to that book was I didn't take a drink for like three years. So that one really, or I say I had three drinks in three years and that was the start of that sobriety, which I still have that sobriety now today. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And I got, because of that book, which really talks more about like the brain science and this kind of like behavioral psychology and how addiction really works. And the fact that everybody that drinks alcohol perpetually or like habitually will eventually get addicted. It's only a matter of time. It's not that there's one special group of people out there who are alcoholics. It's that everyone will become an alcoholic with enough repeated abuse. So even if I, maybe I was born with these genes, maybe I wasn't, but over time I abused it enough that my brain changed and that my dopamine receptors changed and that I developed the addiction as will everyone else that drinks enough alcohol. And so this idea really shifted something for me too. And with that, sustained sobriety, then I was really ready to kind of finally be able to like work on myself with a sustained, like depression free existence. So I think that was like the final piece of puzzle of kind of getting me back to myself. And then I was able to start recovering these creative passions. And I also experienced, I joined this other recovery group called Recovery Elevator, which was an online group. And the founder of that group, I don't know if you're familiar with him, his name is Paul Churchill. He also had a huge impact on me and he had experimented with ayahuasca. So he had, I think he had been sober for four years, but he was feeling depression still. And he had gone to Costa Rica and had these ayahuasca ceremonies. And so I kind of started to think, okay, I think maybe that's something I want to do because I was still really unpacking what had happened in Uganda and Cameroon. There were some other things. I had been held at gunpoint. I had had my car broken into. I had been in a stampede. I had really been in some intense situations. And so, yeah, I decided, okay, I'm going to try to go to one of these ayahuasca ceremonies. And I was talking to somebody in Florida and I was like, I think I'm going to go to Costa Rica to an ayahuasca ceremony. And they were like, there's one down the street. Why don't you just go to that one? And I was like, what? (laughs) And so, you know, as soon as I found out about that, I started tapping into this local community. Turns out it's all over the place in Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And there's a huge community and there's even a community of people who experience addiction And then now periodically use these plant medicines. And I think it was just somehow more palatable to me to think that 
And I know some people are probably listening to think and thinking, oh, this chick's not really sober. She's still dabbling in psychedelics or drinking ayahuasca every now and then. Like, she's not sober. But I do consider myself to be sober. I do feel like I have cured the addictions that I did have. I'm not addicted. I do this stuff really infrequently. And I do it with a lot of intention in a very, like, serious and almost religious way. So more of a... Like a therapeutic way. Yeah, in a therapeutic way. And with talking afterwards, and I was blessed to kind of get involved in a community where the leader of that community had experienced significant addiction and had been addicted to crack and crystal meth and really had come out the other side of it. And the the shaman that we had worked with had worked with alcoholics and other addicts, and they had a lot of wisdom and I think just being in that community, it made me, it made it more palatable to me to kind of like ease into sobriety too, because I think one of the things that holds people back is this idea that we're just going to be like unaffected for the rest of our lives. Like we're never going to be able to like have any kind of unaltered state besides just our sobriety. And that should be a, 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 like a boring state of a boring, unfun life. And I don't think sobriety is boring or unfun at all. But in the early days, there's that fear. You're just like, oh my God, my life, you know, my life is over. And I think, <laughs> I think that experiencing some of these other like group things and just this non-addictive exploration of the mind is, kind of mitigated that for me because I needed, I had, you know, I come from such a like adrenaline junkie lifestyle. And then I came back to America and I was way more settled down and like what my life was way calmer and I needed some kind of excitement and adventure still thrown into that. And then after I experienced that, I decided, Hey, this is something other people really, I think this will benefit so many people. And that's why I decided to write the books because I was like, this whole world out here of these plant medicine ceremonies, I think can be so beneficial. And I don't think a lot of people are that aware that this option exists. Maybe more so now. I think it's becoming more mainstream. But even two years ago, I would say, I would tell friends that I was going to an ayahuasca ceremony and they'd be like, what is that? <laughs> I, th- I still think that'd be the majority of people would really know very little about it, even if they knew anything. But certainly they'd probably think of it as a kind of a, you know, irresponsible drug use as opposed to a medicinal use that's been going on for thousands of years. Florida's also lucky in that respect because there's a lot of cultural tolerance here. So And there's a lot of tolerance of different religions. It's a state that's very open-minded. So there's actually a church of ayahuasca that's been openly practicing here for many years in Orlando. And they've been like working with the FBI and being very transparent and trying to show that this is not drugs. This is not a schedule one drug. This is something that can actually help people. We're helping like wounded veterans. We're helping people who have had serious trauma in their lives and like this is a medicine and this isn't something that people should be penalized or arrested for using so I'm very lucky that I'm in a state that's pretty open-minded 
to this kind of stuff? I don't know how it is in Australia. I think in Australia it would be uh, there wouldn't be that level of awareness around the medicinal and therapeutic side. It would be seen as a kind of a a fringe thing that was Mm -hmm. doubtful. (laughs) That would be the mainstream view, I think. And and then even then, even if you there was an openness to it, then you'd be wondering, well, how would you do that safely and in a qualified way? So I think there'd be a lot of there's a lot of gaps in information. Yeah. I think there's still there are a lot of gaps in general because we haven't been able to study these compounds the way that we should be because of you know the past war on drugs. But I think that's changing, and there there are doing a lot of studies now, and. I know the church here has medical professionals there and has a good reputation, but I think, and there's a lot of places in Mexico and Costa Rica and Peru people can go to if they want to have the experience in those locations. But I just found it very useful and I decided that I wanted to take it to another audience. And also the, it really increased my creativity. And so this stuff just flowed out of me. And then I was sharing it with people and getting very positive feedback. People being like, I loved this. Like, I'm so glad you showed this to me. And a lot of women and even my mom's generation, which I found so interesting, who maybe had been like in the hippie movement, but then had moved back into just like being a wife and a mother and now in their retirement, were like seeking. So I've met quite a few people in what I would say is my parents' generation who are coming back and they're, they're seeking some kind of meaning for, for their lives. And maybe they're coming out of addiction struggles and they've somehow stumbled onto my book or they've stumbled onto my social media. And so I've connected with them and, you know, spent time with them, talking to them one-on-one and like sharing my knowledge of this and, connecting them with that community. And I just see that it has really positive results for people and positive benefits. Of course, it's not like a miracle cure. Like there's a lot of work that needs to be done and these things take time. But I do think that these kind of practices can accelerate your process. And for some people can help them when they might not otherwise get helped at all. Yeah, right. So you're touching on um, kind of spiritual understanding and seeking meaning and things like that. So and I'm just wondering, and you did mention it, your books have a kind of a metaphysical yeah. theme as, as well. And I'm guessing that's that's where you're coming from. Can you tell me how this is kind of connects with that part of you? I think the connection really is as my brain came back online, because alcohol really like disconnects you and it's a depressant, it like deadens your senses. Literally it deadens <laughs> your ability to perceive the outside world. So as you kind of come back online, it's like a sponge just like filling up. And I just felt like suddenly I was, you know, back in touch with like what they call like your inner child or like this universal muse of kind of creativity and vibrance. And so I think in the books, I also explore that of like, you know, that kind of age old story of a person seeking their true life's purpose or like seeking their life's meaning and interacting with these forces 
of the universe. So my books do have like a touch of what I call magical realism, where these like compounds or this like universal sense of connectivity or divine being, or maybe you want to call it your higher power. People are like engaging and connecting with this and having conversations with it. And so that's how I approach it in the book as kind of like there is this divine power out there. You know, you can think of it as God, you can think of it as mother nature, you can think of it as like your own mental consciousness, but I'm exploring how we are connecting to it and what's making my characters feel disconnected from it and how they're getting over that, that severing to like come and be more whole. So it's like this search for wholeness that I think we all look for in our lives, whether we're surfing in the mornings or banging out novels, (laughs) kind of trying, trying to find your purpose. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, being aware of, oneness and, and interconnectedness you know another word might be non-duality and how that that experience can be you know for some people they'll call it an experience of god uh, or higher power but essentially that is inherently part of us and and how alcohol and other drugs can disconnect you or disconnect your awareness let's say because it's always there but through what your your journey is where you've become more aware of that and more feeling more interconnected. Yeah. I think of it as like if we're floating down this like river of like spirit or universal, you know, synchronicity or synergy. And if you're always like drinking and doing drugs, if you're in that cycle of addiction, you're basically like floating down there asleep, like bumping into fishes, bumping into rocks, not knowing where you're going, (laughs) missing all kinds of flowers that are passing you by. So you got to get rid of that and start being aware and back in the flow and like seeing and experiencing what else is in the river with you. And I think the, you know, sometimes I've also experimented with taking, you know, what they call like the heroic dose of mushrooms or like a larger dose of this stuff. And while I do actually think that the microdose is more beneficial, I'm glad I also had those couple other like more intense experiences because, and I should say, I think the microdose is more, more beneficial for people with trauma and people with depression. But I think for any healthy person, having one of these like bigger, deeper experiences, it's also a way to kind of clear the path and clear out the clutter in your mind and like clear out the clutter that the past leaves lying around and make room for something new to come in and new ideas to come in and increases the bandwidth to kind of engage with those creative forces or that like big magic that artists and creative people talk about those muses (laughs) and I definitely experiment I mean I definitely even have like muse characters in this book I'm also very fascinated with mythology and one of my characters is Persian so 
also, you know, ancient Persian mythology. And some of that comes into my writing too. So it's all this like, and it's all so similar. It's kind of, it's interesting to me, these ancient religions that kind of really are quite similar to each other. And it's like, these ideas have been kicking around with humanity for so long. Mm. Well, I think that's because um, like fundamentally we we kind of have the same apparatus in a way, in the sense that we have awareness for starters. We all have that. And I know my experience with psychedelics when I was younger, it really awakened me to how alive everything already is, you know, that trees are actually alive in, in the sense that they're not like a, they're not like a rock, <laughs> like a, a, a not the, and rocks also are alive, but in a different way. But a tree is closer to us than a rock. Um, things and um, and how the conceptual overlay that we put on to everything the moment we wake up, and how it's almost solidified in language that gives this view of separation. You know, it's a language of separation, really. I mean, concept, concepts actually inherently chop up the flow of experience. But when that is, that those tools are put aside, the experience of interconnectedness and oneness is fundamental. Now, for me, and I, well, I was going to say, I think, uh, you know, people that have, like what you said, people that have got trauma or unresolved things, having those more powerful experiences, I think it, it can possibly be maybe detrimental at times if they aren't able to have all of that come up once and, and be able to process that. But, um, but also going right to the other side of when you are clear and consciously putting down some of those conceptual tools so that you can experience things the way that they are inherently that you know that there already is a oneness that's that's present and there always has been you know all of the things that we talk about that we want like belonging peace love they're all inherently the same experience aren't they and yeah they and and so i can see how your path has um, led you to the same place, really. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned that we're similar, to, like we're more similar to trees than rocks because, you know, also, I don't know if you know about the mycelium or the the network of mycelium that's under the earth. Mm-hmm. So For people who don't know. Mushrooms, and I'm not a mycologist, but I'll give a general summary. Mushrooms have this massive fungal root system that's under the earth that now people jokingly call the wood wide web because (laughs) (laughs) this system of roots actually communicates with trees and communicates with plants and delivers nutrients to plants and delivers carbon and sends signals. So the scientists have actually discovered now that trees and other plants will use this network of fungal roots and this other species. There's a lot of symbiosis And so like, let's say a plant is being attacked over here, it'll send a message through the mycorrhizal network to another tree in the same species to be like, hey, we're getting attacked. You need to release the chemical, the anti-attack chemicals. 
And then in exchange, the fungal root system gets basically carbohydrates from the trees and uses that to like sustain itself. And they have this symbiotic relationship, but it's really like the communication network of the trees. And so I also think about this idea of like, that's the communication with them. Like what is the mushrooms communication with us? So you can think about it as, you know, we eat the mushroom and something happens and that that's just how it interfaces with us and you know, it interfaces with the trees in a different way, but they're all interfacing together. And people now have been even able to record the conversations because they're actually audible. There's actually sounds that are being made that humans can hear if we just have like microphones that can amplify them enough. So it is really like the real conversations going on with these plants. This is the sounds sounds of plants. Yeah, bioacoustics. So I also actually explore this in the in the book. So the main character, Saman, who's in the mushroom honeymoon, who's going through his own addiction and kind of trying to find himself. He's he's passionate about bioacoustics and he's thinking about it. And I think in the next book in the series, I'm gonna dive more deeply into that and um, explore that relationship further because it really interests me. And same with ayahuasca. I mean, people have written that it's like the television of the jungle because it's, you know, it's for decades. People in those cultures in the Amazon have been saying that it's been communicating with them. So I'm very interested in this like human plant interaction of consciousness and consciousness across species that can't speak the same language and, you know, maybe just these like chemical compounds or how we can communicate. It's kind of yeah. far out there. Are you familiar with <laughs> well, 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 it, 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 might, it might sound like far out for some people who, who, who aren't that familiar with it, but are you familiar with Carl Jung and, yeah, and his understanding of the collective unconscious? You know, Freud, he was a student of Freud. And, and Freud kind of saw the unconscious as a dumping ground of all the things we don't like about ourselves, like a rubbish heap of consciousness, whereas Jung saw it more as a collective source of a, an intelligent force, source. that, that A we, separate intelligence kind of. Yeah, but that we all actually participate in, including plants and animals, including all of nature, and it's this wholeness that already exists. And it's very similar in some ways to because I, I studied Chinese medicine and worked as an acupuncturist. So that there's a book actually, The Web That Has No Weaver, which is written by one uh, uh, Ted Capchuk. It's kind of a a really good introductory text. But that web that has no weaver is a, trying to explain the same, share the same idea that 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 everything is inherently interconnected and whole. And has, and I guess you know, medicine and and, and health is really just a, a way of um, existing in a certain balance, and everything's already in balance. It's just whether it's a healthy balance for our body mind, or you know, the eco- ecological system and things like that. So it doesn't sound strange to me that plants are connected with consciousness because in a sense if it's already part of the one consciousness then and chinese medicine like pharmacopoeia i mean the the way they think about that is that 
you know, there, there's these actual, you know, roots and plants and leaves that actually have an effect on different parts of the body, different organs. Really specifically, it's quite amazing that a plant that seems to be separate from a human seems to have a separate evolution actually has a symbiotic relationship with, let's say, the kidney or the liver or the nervous system or whatever. It, you know, it's this interconnectedness at every level. So it doesn't sound strange to me. I just think it's we live in a default world of, you know, separation and we that's the way we view things. We think that we are an individual separate from, like that you and I are separate, but we're really not. I mean, right now our awareness is one, even though we our bodies might be in different places, you know. So, um, yeah, I find it. I find it all very fascinating, and you know, I really, I guess, part of part of what interests me is breaking down that what I would call of views that are not true about our about what and who we are. Well, isn't it that I believe that we have way more bacteria cells in our bodies than human cells? Whoa. So <laughs> that's that also one. a fact. <laughs> yeah, there's a very famous, there's a TED talk on that. If you Google okay. human bacteria or something, you'll find it. But I also like going back to that web as we're wrapping up in so many tribes in the Southwest of the United States and uh, the Hopi tribe in particular had this whole creation myth about a grandmother spider who wove a web to create the whole universe. And the whole universe was created from a web and that then little things like peeked up from the web and that eventually like we're all, we'll all return to this web and this like master spider goddess will suck us back into the web. And when I read that, I was like, oh, this also sounds like mushrooms and mycelium. And, you know, they believed that this web was like kind of holding the earth together and connecting everything. And I think if anything else, it's just a useful metaphor and the mushrooms are just a useful metaphor for so many things in life and like how we can look at interacting with everything from our digital communications to, you know, thinking about a book as like a fruit body of this web that I'm in or the web that you're in or your podcast is like the, you know, man the manifestation, like fruiting mushroom of your internal web of thoughts. And Yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And would you say that, because there's so much that we don't know consciously and it's hard to kind of know which direction is a good direction. But would you agree that that where there's love, genuinely, that's a good direction? <laughs> yes, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. And uh, so that makes it really simple then, doesn't it? Where what takes us away from love in some ways is a bit of a disconnection. And also a lack of peace, lack of deep connectedness and, and, and satisfaction and happiness. And, and I can see what you're doing in a sense is you're following your, your love manifesting as your creative passion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I would take it even a step further that like, so if you think about creation as like a manifestation of love so often when we love somebody we'll create with them in different ways and I think that's also like an ingredient for peace like as much as we need love with different people 
we also need mutual beneficial creation because humans are like, we were created, but we were also created to create. And that's what we thrive doing is when we're creating things that are beneficial together and coming together to create things. And we're not destroying each other or destroying things. We're really innovating and innovating and creating things that benefit us all. I think that's where humans find their true happiness. So that's why I'm also super focused on like this creative recovery. And like, I think if everybody goes and follows their passion and creates things and, you know, this recovery idea of do the next right thing, I think it's just so such good advice. And if you can live by that and follow your creative passions, the whole world will be a better place. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a great note to to finish up on, I think. It's been a really fascinating journey in a way, our conversation. I mean, I've really, you know, really enjoyed the whole ride. And and but also just where we've, you know, ended up is just really um it's a really nice place. So thanks so Thank much you for so much. Yeah, I've re- thanks uh, with that we might just say goodbye and um I really hope that we connect again and I'm sure we will thank you so much for having me you're welcome see you then good night or good morning